0: Good morning. Hello. I was speaking earlier, but never mind. I'm Helen Jackson. I'm uh, a church warden here. Uh, um, My husband, Tim, and I came here 20 years ago with our three children, um, Connor, Niall, and Rasheen. Um, But uh, now we are celebrating a a miraculously tidy, empty nest. Uh, It's very strange. Um, But Today, we're moving forward in the sermon series on the big story of God, which Anne introduced last week. And we are considering the overarching narrative of the Bible and thinking about where we are in God's big story and the part we play in it. So this morning, the theme is God Makes, and we're going to be looking at the story of creation in Genesis and what that tells us about how God wants us to live today. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you made us and that you made the world we live in in all its wonder and complexity As we look at the story of your creation, we pray that you will speak through my words into all our hearts, and that what is not from you will fall to the ground. Amen. So I'd like to start this morning by um, sharing with you a photograph, which I was given at the end of October when I was leaving my job at the university. Um, I was an in-house lawyer. And one of the parts of my jobs that I like really, really the best was when I had to deputise for my boss, the registry, at uh, graduation ceremonies when i did it for the last time the university's ceremonial officer tim milner suggested we have a group photo taken with the university pro- proctors and this is the result um, tim milner is the one in the center of the back who i think just steals the entire picture um, I don't know if you've ever been to a graduation ceremony in the Senate House, but it's a bit like being in a a Puccini opera. And the day starts with the university constables processing through Cambridge with spears and blunderbusses. And um, within the Senate House, there's a lot of prancing about and gesticulating. And the whole thing is utterly incomprehensible, because apart from the fire instructions, every word of the ceremony is in Latin. And my role was to sit in this green chair. It was essential that I sat in the green chair. I was told, if I didn't sit in the green chair, nobody's degrees would work. And... (laughs) And so I was really tempted to kind of keep getting up and down to see what happened, but I never did. But uh, although it seemed crazy and incomprehensible, if you actually go back to the origins of the ceremony, it was still absolutely true to what was originally intended. The ceremony is actually a session of the Regent House, the university's parliament, And the registrary, who I was representing, has to sit in the green chair to provide assurance that everyone who is getting their degree has passed the necessary exams. And the vice-chancellor then knows that it's okay to give that person a degree. Uh, So now here's a picture of my son Niall um, getting his degree. Niall's actually here. Didn't know that was going to happen. Um, But... uh, He's getting his degree from Dame Fee, the Master of Emmanuel. But at this point, she's not being the Master of Emmanuel. She's acting on behalf of the Vice-Chancellor. She's kind of channeling the Vice-Chancellor because she herself has no authority to give the degree herself. So when church is over, you can go online and check that she did have the proper authorization under University Statute C37, Subsection A, to do so. So everything is still being played out strictly in accordance with the original pattern. Prescribed shortly after the flood um, in in the university statutes and ordinances and Tim the ceremonial officer is absolutely rigorous about making sure every detail is right because we the public need to know when someone's got a degree they really have a degree so thinking of crazy and incomprehensible you may think where where is she going with this um, But we live in a world of massive complexity and challenge, information overload. And it's very easy just to exist from day to day and not think about the role that we have to play in God's story and why that might be important. So looking at Genesis gives us an opportunity to go right back to the beginning and look at the truth of how we came to be here And what God intended for us before the fall in the Garden of Eden, before Jesus, before anything else. So let's look at the passage now. It's right at the start of Genesis. It's on page three of the Pew Bibles, if you want to get one from the shelves or look on your app, or the words will come up on the screen anyway. So it's Genesis chapter 1, starting at 24. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day... God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Amen. So if we look at this passage, the first thing that becomes obvious in terms of the relationship between us and God is that God made the world and put us in it, and not the other way around. This whole earth thing, this project, is God's and not ours. It wasn't a case of mankind arriving and God saying, thank goodness you're here, we can get started, because God had already finished There are, if you like, two stages to creation the initial creation of the earth and all the living things, and then the second stage, when the things that God has placed there can be fruitful and multiply. Mankind is formed when the first phase is all done and God has created a world which works, which is naturally fruitful. But mankind has a clear purpose, which is to oversee the second stage, to fill the earth and subdue it. So although it's God's project, we do have a clear part to play. God has work, which he intends us all to do. So let's look at our entrance in verse 26. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. We've maybe got too used to saying glibly, we're made in the image of God, it's great, without thinking about what that means. But it's this that sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. We have the imprint of God, something which enables us to live in relationship with him. We're all different, but everyone, even the people we don't like very much, has God's divine DNA imprinted in them. Our whole identity, the core of our being, is founded in God. Looking ahead to the New Testament, in Ephesians 4, St Paul says that when we become Christians, we're called to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness like God in true righteousness and holiness this is surely what God intended when he made mankind originally before things went wrong in the Garden of Eden more of that next week Um, this is what it truly means to be made in the image of God And while that image is marred, that pattern from creation is still repeated faithfully in each one of us. So going on to verse 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Whoa. I mean, I have never read this properly before. Men and women both created in the image of God, deserving of that same respect and dignity. When I started work in 1984 as a trainee solicitor, I was the first female trainee that my firm had ever had. Uh, They had no female partners and I just felt hugely privileged to be there. But all sorts of unbelievably negative stuff happened with clients and colleagues because people just weren't used to having a woman trainee. In 1984, we didn't have keyboards on our desks. We were reliant on secretaries, who were all women, to type our letters and documents. But some of the secretaries refused to type my work, though they would type work for the male trainees. They thought that a female trainee solicitor should have an office in the desk, a desk in the office of the person training me, but I should also have a desk in the typing pool so I could type my own work because women type for men. It's it's obvious, really. So (laughs) while I had no option. But to challenge things like that, generally, I just muddled through and tried not to rock the boat too much. I felt just very thankful that I had an opportunity to pursue a career which others hadn't. And I just accepted that it wasn't going to be perfect. But it's really astonishing to think of things like that happening now. So when my daughter Roisin said that she and her friends were starting a Christian feminist blog, The Lydian Women, I said, marvelous, darling. But I thought, what on earth are they going to say? Everything is so much less bad than it used to be. Do they think women should be ruling the world? Well, the answer is no. They just wanted to be true to God's vision of male and female being made in the image of God and being entitled to the dignity and self-respect that that carries with it. They start from the model in the creation story and say, look, we're falling short of that ideal, rather than saying, as I do, things are so much less bad. When I heard about Harvey Weinstein and all the revelations in the #MeToo campaign I wasn't at all surprised and I indeed I reflected on the number of women who probably exploited Harvey Weinstein as much as he exploited them but that's actually a completely rubbish attitude this is what the Lydian women say about the church's attitude to Harvey Weinstein and hashtag me too. Whether at college or at home or just on Facebook, I can't move for people asking whether I've listened to the new Guilty Feminist podcast or watched that Ofra Winfrey speech. But when I spend time in Christian circles, it's like the last six months haven't happened The name Harvey Weinstein is rushed over. The phrase hashtag me too barely said. But I want to be part of a church that treats women as Jesus treated them. I want to be part of a church that stands up and shouts against a culture where sexual harassment is what women expect. I want to be part of a church that stands with women and screams, this is not the vision God has for you. Well, I find it difficult to say anything to the Lydian women, but amen to that. Let's go back and start from the original vision of God in creation and aspire to that as our ideal and not let that vision be distorted by what's happened since. (sighs) So um, anyway, uh, if we can have chapter two back on the screen... um, God makes the whole world and finally makes mankind and the job is done. He then takes pleasure in what he created and rests for a day. Now, to be honest, I don't think God really needed the rest. I don't think being omnipotent and getting overtired go hand in hand. But um, by resting on the seventh day, he established the pattern of work and rest over the course of the week that we still follow. And we all know or should know, whether we're Christians or not, the importance of taking a break from our work, of allowing ourselves to be restored and re-energized. It's essential for our physical and mental well-being but we also need to understand what practicing the Sabbath means as part of our spiritual well-being. Sometimes the nearest we get to a break is stopping doing one thing and picking up another, but that can offer some respite and refreshments. When our children were at home and we were both working, I don't have any recollection of any kind of intentional rest other than actual sleep. Even our holidays were not restful. In 2015, when our children were all adults, we had the first family holiday ever where nobody cried from sheer stress. It wasn't for lack of opportunity. We were just hardened by then. So there's a danger that because life is pressured spiritually, the Sabbath becomes another thing to fail at as well as not being on top of the housework and the ironing and making sure everyone's got the right games kit, you have failed at resting. So what does Sabbath rest mean spiritually when there seems no escape from the demands of life? Jesus tells us in Mark 2, 27, that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is there to help us, not to trip us up. Kel Dahlman, when he was here in 2016, talked about having a mindset which was maintaining a sense of Sabbath all the time, all through the week. He gave us the examples of the two runners in Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrahams, whose whole identity depended on winning the hundred yards. As he put it, I have ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. In contrast, Eric Liddell, who was just as passionate about running, withdrew from his Olympic heat because he chose not to run on the Sabbath. He wasn't being legalistic, but his identity was God. He knew God dwelling within him, and he was confident of God's grace and God's covenant of salvation to him. He knew he didn't need to run or to win, how cool is that? He didn't need to break his established Sabbath practice for a race. So we make our a choice. Is our identity in performance and perfection, or is it in covenant and Sabbath? Spiritually, having a Sabbath mindset means you know you're not having to perform to be who you are. You know that you are who you are, because God created you and loves you however you perform. When I was preparing for today, I read this book, Sit, Walk, Stand, by Watchman Nee. It's quite an old book, um, and it feeds into Tony Horsfall's book, Working from a Place of Rest, which is what I was actually intending to read. But I'm afraid I chose this one because I get a bit twitchy about talking about working from a place of rest, because rest is a bit of a hurdle for me. Um, and this book was also much shorter. Um, Watchman Nee describes something similar to the Sabbath ma- mindset, like this. Christianity is a queer business. If at the outset we try to do anything, we get nothing. If we att- seek to attain something, we miss everything for christianity begins not with a big do but a big done thus ephesians opens with the statement that god has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in christ and we're invited at the very outset to sit down and enjoy what god has done for us not to set out to try and attain it for ourselves so Watchman these words reflect the model of the creation story. Mankind is created when everything is done and it's time to rest. But they also reflect the message of the New Testament, that our salvation flows from grace and not from what we do. Accepting this is at the heart of the covenant and Sabbath mindset, the opposite of striving for performance and perfection. But even if we manage to establish a Sabbath mindset through the week, God did make us for a purpose. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared, for us in, prepared in advance for us to do. We're created to do good works, but we need to work from that Sabbath mindset, not a performance mindset. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And if we can let go and let the Holy Spirit work within us, our actions will take their character directly from that. It's through letting go and letting God work through us that he can achieve what he wants. We need to kind of channel God, a bit like Dame Fee was channeling the vice-chancellor. That's not to say that might not lead to our being called to do things that are challenging. In the last year, before I left my job at the university, I'd been doing the same job for 15 years and I was acutely conscious I wanted things to change. And I was equally conscious that I was doing that thing of leaving God outside the office and trying to make everything better myself. I didn't have a Sabbath mindset. I was preoccupied with wanting to make everything right in my workplace, and my identity was in my role as a lawyer. So to remedy this, instead of taking the shortcut to my office up the back stairs, I would go in through the front door, and I would prayer walk through the building every morning. I would start by giving thanks for all the people that had contributed to the university. And then I'd walk through the building praying for the people who worked there. And when I got to my office, I would be calling on God to come and be present with us that day. Now, if you are thinking of trying this, I was doing it in a kind of eyes open, silently praying way. Um, But anyway, I would do that, and then I just carried on as normal. And for a while, I didn't notice any difference. But gradually, I came to recognize that when I went to work, I was going somewhere where I knew that God was in control, not me and not anyone else. I became open to quite radical thoughts. It was very liberating. And it had effect on some of my colleagues, too. They wanted to know why I was coming in the long way round. And when I explained what I was doing, if they met me coming in the back way because I was late, they would send me back to do my <laughs> prayer walk. Or they would come and walk with me. Which led to some amazing conversations, including the person who asked how they could trust that God was in the building on a day that I didn't come in. <laughs> um, but I still worked very hard and very conscientiously, but I stopped identifying so strongly with the with success. And I stopped worrying about how I was doing and worrying about the future. And ultimately, an extraordinary chain of events unfolded that led to my deciding to leave. Now, that doesn't have to happen to you. It just happened to be the right way forward to me. And God made that very clear and made me less afraid of doing that. And now my identity is in God, and I know that he has a plan for me. I just don't know what that is. But I know he has a plan. So because I'd begun to work from a Sabbath mindset rather than a mindset defined and confined by my own feelings about my job, I was able to put God in the driving seat. And from that, I became able able to think and do the unthinkable. So we seem to be a long way from creation and resting on the seventh day. But the overriding message is the same. God created the world. He made us in his image to be in relationship with him to rest in him, and from there to allow him to work his purposes out through us. So, as we're looking towards the start of another week, let's ask ourselves, in our relationships, do we recognise that everyone is made in the image of God, irrespective of their gender or whether we like them or anything else? Do we afford everyone the dignity and respect that goes With being made in the image of God? Or are there others who are stopping us from feeling that dignity and respect for ourselves? Do we need to ask God to be released from that? Is our mindset focused on performance and perfection or covenant and Sabbath? Are we letting God work through us or are we putting Him to one side? And defining our own agenda? Are we undervaluing the things He's called us to do? I'd like to finish by returning to my Irish roots with some comforting words from the prayer of St. Patrick Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort. And restore me. Amen.